where we have in our morning services been working through uh, some of the minor prophets. Uh, I'm going to take a wee break from that for a, for a time. I'm mindful that we have the harvest service uh, next Sunday morning. I don't want to keep dipping in and dipping out of our series in the minor prophets. Um, and also I want to try and tie up the fellowship groups with what we are looking at on our Sunday mornings as well. So we're going to give the fellowship groups a wee bit of time to catch up with where we are. So we are turning together this morning to John's Gospel, John chapter 4. We looked at John in our uh, prayer meeting on Wednesday. And we will read together a passage that is often read around this time of year, around harvest time. John chapter 4, we will read together from verse 1. page 1066 in the Pure Bibles. John chapter 4 and verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, women, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, I'm he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. In verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Amen. Give you a few moments while I race down and get my Bible to have a look at that picture. And tell me what you see. If you can see a, a rabbit, raise your hand. And if you see a duck, raise your hand. Okay, good. That's an older one. See a vase? Well done, Jim. Can you see two faces? Most. That's the last one. That's the most famous one. You can see an old lady. Raise your hand. Well done. You can see a young lady. Okay. So some can see both, but I show these pictures just to make one very simple point that 
We can all look at exactly the same thing and yet see two totally different things. We could look at the same scene and see something entirely different from the person next to us. So the question I want us to come to today is twofold. Firstly, what do we see? And secondly, what are we seeking? What do we see and what are we seeking? That's where we're going to arrive uh, by the end of this morning's message. So firstly, let me ask, what do you see when you look to Jesus? What do you see when you look to Jesus? Some see a nice man, a good moral teacher, a pious person. Others see a kind of left-wing liberator of the poor and oppressed. I've spoken to people who see a kind of mythological figure who didn't really exist. That's what they see. That's what they say they see when they look to Jesus. What do you see? And what should we see as we look to Jesus from our passage in John chapter 4 this morning? I think the first thing that we ought to see from these pages, from this passage, is the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ has been gaining followers. Those followers have been, have been uh, baptized. And uh, the, the Pharisees are beginning to become somewhat perturbed by what they are hearing of this young Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, Jesus decides, because his time has not yet come, that he is going to move from Judea down in the south, where Jerusalem is. He's going to move back up to Galilee for a time. And so uh, we read in verse 3, when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. There is the humanity of Jesus, is it not? When the Lord learned. What what does John say of Jesus just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him... Nothing was made that has been made. So this is God, the creator, God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Creator God, the omniscient one, the all-seeing one, takes on flesh. He has made man And here we see that he learns what it is to learn. We might think, well, doesn't he know? Doesn't he know before a word is on the lips of the Pharisees? Doesn't he know that the Pharisees have begun to talk about him? Begun perhaps to plan, to plot? Doesn't he know? Well, he doesn't know until someone tells him. When the Lord learned of this, someone speaks to him. And then he knows. And we see the humanity of Jesus all the more clearly in verses 6 and 7. 
Jacob's well was there, verse 6 of chapter 4. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? He is tired and he is thirsty. The one who gave life and energy to all the creator and sustainer of the universe was tired and he was thirsty. The one who changed water into wine needs a drink. We see the humanity of Jesus. And we think again of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we think about uh, all things being made through Him. But then we come to verse 14, don't we, of chapter 1. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The condescension of God in Christ. Isn't it amazing? God made man. God enfleshed for us. I try to think of a way of, of illustrating this, of a wee picture that would point to this truth. And I, I racked my brain. I thought of maybe like powerful parents, presidents, or prime ministers who come home from their job and then roll about the floor with their children laughing together, playing silly games. And I thought about uh, a manager uh, humbling himself or a chief executive humbling herself to, to take a wee day on the shop floor down with the normal, ordinary workers. I thought of all of these pictures, but truth be told, there is nothing you can use, really, even as a picture, even as a pointer. Everything falls too far short. Everything else is too small, even just to point the way towards the condescension of God in Christ. They are just beyond insufficient. There is no way to illustrate this. All we can do is to look with wonder and worship at what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. God was made man. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It is wonderful. We see the humanity of Christ in this passage, in these verses. And we see the divinity of Christ in the same passage, don't we? We see the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Jesus asks the woman for a drink. She wonders what he's doing, speaking to her. She's a Samaritan. He is a Jew. She's a woman. He's a man. Culturally, this would have been shocking. I know that, that will seem strange to us today in our culture, in our society, but that would have been utterly shocking in the culture of the day for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a Samaritan woman while alone as well. It would have been deeply deeply shocking. It would have been a scandalous thing. The, the, the tabloids would have been clearing their front page to print this story. It would have been, get Wayne Rooney off. We've got something even bigger to put on the front page this morning. Scandalous thing. The woman 
queries Jesus, questions Jesus. And then Jesus, in verse 10, as he responds to the woman, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She doesn't understand. She's actually like Nicodemus, who's just come before in John's gospel. She, she takes us um, literally or liter, literalistically. Uh, she says, Sir, are you greater than Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer, of course, to the rhetorical question is yes. He's greater. He's much greater. He's infinitely greater. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So just a moment ago, we have Jesus' humanity. God in Christ has been made man. Jesus has, has learned what it is to learn. He has come to know what it is to not know something, to need to be told. And yet here we have Jesus knowing this woman whom he has never met. He has not been briefed by some Samaritan as to the life that she has been living. Jesus knows this woman as only God can know her. He knows her life, he knows her secrets, he knows her sadness, he knows her shame, he knows it all. He knows her as only God can. And that ought to stand and serve as a reminder to us that he knows us, he knows us as only he can. We can be very good at hiding things from others, very good at hiding things even from ourselves at times. But he knows us just as we are all the baggage that we may have brought to this place on this morning. He knows. He knows us. So Jesus knows this woman, though he has never met her, and he offers to give her what only God can give her. Living water. Water that gives ever-living life. Actually, uh, this is a title that God takes to himself, the spring of living water. In, in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me. That's the first sin. The spring of living water. So, Jesus, so God takes that title to himself. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug out their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That's their two sins. They have forsaken God, firstly, and secondly, they have dug cisterns, not, not literally, but they, they, have, they have looked to other places to try and find that which only God can give. 
They've tried to replace God with something that can never satisfy and never bring life. Actually, we've all done that in our own way. Those of our number who are fairly recent parents will know that Peppa Pig has a lot to answer for, for the uninitiated Peppa and her brother George and her mum and dad, mummy and daddy pig. Uh, They love, more than anything else, more than everything else, to jump in muddy puddles. So every child who learns to love Peppa Pig learns to love to jump in muddy puddles. And uh, we just get through all of that, that, that stage and those problems with Katie, and then all of a sudden Grace decided that she liked Peppa Pig too, and we had to go through it all again, the jumping in muddy puddles. But the, the, the terrible reality is that grown-ups, that adults, have a tendency not to jump in muddy puddles, but to drink from muddy puddles, not literally but to drink from the muddy puddles of sin, to try to find the satisfaction and the life that only God can give to us. Life that God offers to us in Christ Jesus. John chapter 10, Jesus says that He has come, that we may have life, life in all its fullness, or life in abundance, some translations say. That's what we all long for. That's what we're all looking for. But some of us turn to mucky, muddy waters to drink. And these things that we turn to might give us pleasure for a moment, but they will leave us feeling unclean on the inside and sick in the end. The truth is actually that even clean, fresh water pursuits are not enough. Good things make for bad gods. That is the reality. We were on our way to Perth, as you've heard already, and we drove past this enormous bottling plant. I think it was Highland Spring, I'm not sure. It was absolutely enormous. And I tried to envisage how many bottles of fresh uh, Perthshire water they must produce every day. I've got no idea. That water, I'm sure, is fresh and pure, and it it serves to give life and health to those who drink it, I'm quite sure. But only for a lifetime. Only for a lifetime. Not so with that which the Lord Jesus Christ offers to each one of us. Everyone who drinks this water, he says to the Samaritan woman, will be thirsty again, But whoever drinks the water I will give to him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Only God can give that to us. And He only offers it to us in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you see when you see Jesus? Do you see God reaching down to us in love to take on flesh and to live and to die and to conquer death on our behalf? Do we look to Him and rejoice that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted 
in every way, just as we are, yet was and is without sin. The humanity of Jesus. He knows what it is to experience what we experience in life. The raw realities of life in this broken world. The humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. He knows us as only God could know us. He knows all that we are struggling with. He knows all that we have done. He knows all of our mistakes, all of our regrets, all of our hopes, all of our dreams. He knows that we see the one as we look to Jesus who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, and that we see the one in Jesus who has the power to reach down and to rescue us, to save us. What do you see when you look to Jesus? And what do you see when you look to this Samaritan woman? She was, of course, a sinner. She was sinful. In terms of her religious belief, she was thoroughly confused. The Samaritans were thoroughly confused. When it comes to her lifestyle, she had been married five times, and the man that she's not living with is not, she is living with it now, is not her husband. Uh, we may think nothing of that, and, and, or the society that we live in may think nothing of that. as a, a, a very different view of, of marriage than the one that the Bible presents to us, and we are under increasing pressure from the world to change our view of marriage. It would have been a, a, a profoundly um, looked down upon lifestyle that this Samaritan woman was living in the culture in which she lived. To the Samaritan and to the Jew, this was a, a, a sinful life. You, you, you would not have been allowed uh, really to have been married five times get married up to three times. So I don't know about the other two marriages. Maybe they weren't um, proper marriages either. And it would certainly have been regarded as very sinful to live with a man or to live with a woman without being married. This is sin. This is saying to God, I know better than you do. So she is a sinner. Secondly, we ought to notice that she is loved. She is loved. Look at verse 4. Doesn't look uh, like much. Verse 4 says, Now he had to go through Samaria. You think, well, Judea is down in the south. Galilee is up in the north. And in between is Samaria. So it makes sense that if he's going to go from Judea to Galilee, he's going to have to go through Samaria. But actually, most of the time the Jews wouldn't do that. Most of the times they would cross uh, the River Jordan and go around the side of, of Samaria. It was very dangerous to go through Samaria. They wouldn't have wanted to have made that journey. So the common thing to do would be to cross the river, go around Samaria, and arrive in Galilee to the north. So geographically speaking, he doesn't have to go through Samaria. And yet verse 4 says very clearly, now, he had to go through Samaria. So the obvious question is, why? Why did he have to go through Samaria? Could it be that the reason he had to go through Samaria was because there was a woman there that he had to meet with 
and to minister to in love. He speaks to her, a woman and a Samaritan. He treats her with dignity. She's had five husbands. She's living with another guy now. It's not likely that she would have been treated with any respect by those around her, by those in her community, those in her society. But in the words of Bruce Milne, Jesus deals with her as a person in her own right, with her unique history and special longings. She emerges in the account as a credible character with personal dignity because Jesus treats her as such. Simply put, Jesus loved her and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to reach her. She was a sinner. She was loved. And lastly, she was used. That in itself is a kind of horrible phrase, really, isn't it? Uh, uh, and perhaps she had been used in a bad way before. It's speculation, but I think the, the details that we are given about her life, kind of, they invite us to speculate to a certain extent. Maybe she had been used in a way that made her feel unclean. Maybe she had been used in a way that made her feel trapped. Maybe she had been used in a way which left her deeply, profoundly unfulfilled. But now, having met with the Lord Jesus Christ, she is used by God in a way which would have turned all of that on its head. She is used by God in a way that must have made her feel more fulfilled than she had ever felt, in a way that must have made her feel clean and significant. She is used by God to bring others to the man that she has met, to bring others to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a woman, remember, living in sin. In the culture of the day, a woman would probably not have been regarded as a very credible witness. A woman living this lifestyle would certainly not have been regarded as a credible witness. And yet the whole town responds to what she has to say. Why is that? Maybe her enthusiasm? She is so excited by this man. Maybe it's just the change that people can instantly see in this woman as she speaks to them. I wonder if you've ever met someone within a minute of meeting them, you've thought to yourself, I think this person is a, is a Christian. Just something about the way that they are and the way that they conduct themselves and the way that they speak. You think, I think this, this person is a, a believer. Well, whatever that is, this woman certainly wouldn't have had it before she met Jesus. Maybe she has it now, and they just see something so different that they can't quite put their finger on. They are so intrigued that the whole town responds to what she has to say and makes its way en masse towards the Lord Jesus Christ. To be used to lead 
just one person to Jesus would be a huge thing. It would make a lifetime's work uh, worth it. She leads her whole town to Jesus, having just met the man herself. Did she have all the answers? No. Uh, Was she a hugely impressive witness? No. Was God pleased to use her? Yes. Do we have all the answers? No. Even if you've spent four years at, at, you know, the Baptist College or some seminary somewhere, do you have all the answers? No. Are we hugely impressive witnesses? Probably not. Most of us are quite ordinary. Most of us don't have the kind of story that we had everything in life. We were famous. We were rich. We had million-pound villas. We were successful. We were beautiful or really handsome. But something was just missing. And we found it in, in Christ. Most of us don't have that testimony. Most of us don't have the testimony you know, our lives were ruined, we were addicted to all sorts of things, we, we did all sorts of terrible stuff, and then we met Jesus and our life was turned around. But most of us don't have those kind of stories. Maybe we don't seem very impressive, but will God be pleased to use us if we have the courage to stand up, to step out, to speak a word for Jesus? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. And as people make their way through these, uh, these fields towards Jesus, he sees them streaming through the fields down towards him. He, he, he speaks to his disciples. He speaks to his followers. He encourages them to lift their eyes in order that they might see what he sees as he surveys the sea. Verse 35, Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. wonder if that's what the disciples saw as they lifted their heads and opened their eyes and they looked around and they saw these Samaritans streaming through the fields towards them. Is that what they saw? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. So what do we see? What do we see as we look uh, to our streets, as we walk along Graham Street, past the church, into the pedestrianized area, and all of the busyness and all of the hustle and bustle? What, what do we see? Do we see what Jesus sees? As we sit in the New Costa and watch the world go by. Do we see what Jesus sees? Do we see what God might be willing to do in the lives of these people for His glory and for the kingdom of Christ and for, the, for their joy? Do we see what God might be willing to do through us as we take a wee step and speak a wee word for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we see what Jesus sees? That's the first half of the question. The second half is, what are we seeking? What do we see? Do we see what Jesus sees? Do we look at people through the lens 
of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we see what Jesus sees? And are we seeking what God is seeking? The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, says Jesus. In spirit means in here, in, in, in the heart. So God is not seeking for people to worship uh, by religious right and ritual and rules alone. These things may have their part to play. We will share uh, in a time around the Lord's table uh, after uh, this sermon. We'll sing and then we'll gather around the Lord's table. And that's a very powerful and moving moment in our time together. We give thanks to God for it. But the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit, with our hearts. Is that what we are seeking? Of ourselves and of those that we look to in our town? Would we love them to come, not just to warm a pew, not just to observe a religious ritual, not just to sustain the institution that is the church? Are we looking for them to come to know what it is to worship God in spirit, to give Him glory from their hearts. That is what the Father is seeking. But not just in, in spirit, lest we think it's all about emotion and, and, and feelings divorced from truth. That's not the case at all. Falsehood dishonors God, and falsehood robs people of true joy and real peace. And you will see this as you look. Uh, even those who claim to be Christians, as they ignore the Word of God, as they go down false paths, as they claim that Jesus is for things that Jesus is not for, you will see that they are dishonoring God and that actually they are robbing themselves of true joy and real peace in Jesus. God is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Are we seeking the same in His name? Are we longing and praying and conversing to that end? If this Samaritan woman was not beyond the the loving reach of God's grace in Christ, then surely there is hope for us all. What do we see all around us, on our streets, in our families? What do we see? Do we see what He sees? And what are we seeking? Are we seeking what He is seeking? Let me finish with that Bruce Milne quote, because I want to add one more line on. I cut it a little bit short, deliberately. Let me add the final line on to that quote. Bruce Milne says, Jesus deals with her, the Samaritan woman, as a person in her own right, with her unique history and special longings. She emerges in the account as a credible character with personal dignity because Jesus treats her as such. Simply put, Jesus loved her and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to reach her. And then he says this, 
our failures in evangelism are so often failures in love. Our failures in evangelism are so often failures in love. May the redeeming love of Christ Jesus find a home in each of our hearts and at the heart of this family of faith. And having been so deeply loved and so freely forgiven, may we see what He sees and seek what He seeks in this town for our Father's glory, for the kingdom of Christ, and for the good of the people to whom we are called to serve and to bear witness to in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take a moment just to bow our heads together in prayer, and then we'll stand as we sing our closing hymn, God forgave my sin freely, freely.